<laughs> so we're back for a new season. And at the end of last season, we promised you we'd take a serious look into the race to replace Thomas Mulcair as the leader of the federal NDP. Over the next couple of episodes, we're going to talk to all four candidates. Today, Guy Cajon explains why he thinks guaranteed annual income will end up saving Canada money, why electoral reform is a make-or-break condition for him, and how he sees an NDP-led government interacting with Canada's First Nations. I'm Ashley Chinati. I'm Ryan McMahon. And I'm Hadia Rodrigue. From Canada Land, this is Commons. So welcome, welcome back, everybody. Back. Uh, we're going to get into the show, but I want—I have, we haven't—we haven't been in the same room for a long time. So how did you? How was your summer? How did you spend your summer? I went to Banff and did Banff. some did some journalism. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Banff's Art Center. Th- that's it's exciting, but it's also not. Well, I was in a cab. <laughs> huge fellowship to get though. I no, was, it is. I no. was in a cabin in the woods. There were deer. Oh. I was writing stuff. It was pretty awesome. Cabin. Didn't last season you told me black people don't camp. It's not camping. It's a cabin. Oh, it's more like glamping. <laughs> it's like definitely glamorous. glamping. I had a grand piano in the middle of my Dang. cabin. <laughs> what? Okay. That's not. You're right. That's not yeah. camping. Yeah. That's it. How about you, Ashley? Um, I spent most of it at like cottages, stuff like that, getting pretty drunk and trying to accept the fact that I turned thirty. That was my summer vacation. So also not camping. Yeah, not camping. Cabining. Cabining. Well, I'm. I, I camped all summer. So screw it's you like both. A- in a tent. <laughs> Roots up my ass, <laughs> sweating it out in tents. <laughs> um, so we took the summer off because, hey, it's summer and no politics happen in the summer, right? I mean, right. politics. It was really quiet, guys. They just happened. go to barbecues or if you're in Alberta, pancake breakfast. You know, no one does any actual serious work except... What the hell? It ended up being a very eventful summer. Such a crazy summer. And so we're going to we're going to spend a bit of time playing catch up. Okay, well, I guess like the first thing we have to unpack, it feels like it was forever ago, but it really wasn't, was Charlottesville. The clash between far right, alt right, overt neo-Nazi white supremacists and uh, counter protesters about the fate of a statue of Robert E. Lee, but maybe really about the fate of America's soul? I don't know. And you have Donald Trump saying there were good people on both sides. It has just been a bonkers time in American politics. So let's let's connect that to Canada, right? And let's let's talk about, you know, the way we're seeing the same type of movement play out in Canada. We could look out in Halifax, we could look out in Alberta. Vancouver, Quebec City, there were where there were rallies and counter rallies in Toronto. There was one plan that got shut down. There've been so-called free speech events shut down in Toronto, um, which are sometimes actually about a discussion, but most of the time seem to be people using free speech as a dog whistle for the alt-right, which is driving me nuts because it's an important small liberal issue. Uh, but that we could do a whole ish- like a whole episode on. What happens down south spills over here. Yeah. Like we've seen it time and time again. And I think it's just going to 
let people be more emboldened. And, you know, we think Canada doesn't have this racism problem. Guess what? We do. And people are going to start coming out of the woodworks. And I think we introduced last season that we were going to be connecting the dots more between U.S. politics and Canadian politics. That, that'll be an ongoing thing through the season. But there's a little part of me, there's a, there is a glimmer of hope in all of this darkness. And just the other day in Winnipeg, there was a small fascist protest that was, you know, announced. And there was a couple of bullhorns and some uh, some nasty flags. And then 600 people showed up to uh, counter protest and just completely quashed the dozen or so alt-right-ish uh, people that were out there for the, the fascist demonstration. And we are seeing communities and people stand in opposition to it. And for me, uh, today recording this podcast, what I'm trying to hold on to is that little glimmer of hope that yeah. we are, in fact, going to rise up in our communities against this type of, of, of hate. Well, I did see Hamilton over my summer vacation while I was in Chicago. So now I have the Rise Up song stuck in my head from Hamilton. Can, can, so. can you sing? Can you sing it? Sing it? No, I'm not going to oh, sing shit. it. Okay. <laughs> People have to sign up to Patreon for me to sing. You have to send, show us some receipts and I'll sing. Yes, go to our website, makeashleysing.com. <laughs> Um, another big story is the refugees coming over the border. So nearly 8,000 asylum seekers have crossed the border into Quebec alone in the past three months. And when this migration started in earnest last winter across both the Quebec and Manitoba borders, the majority of people crossing were from the Middle East or North Africa. Now they're joined by a significant number of Haitians. Um, almost 70% of the recent arrivals are from Haiti. Why do we think this is happening? So there's been some really interesting reporting on why this is happening. There's been misinformation going throughout the Haitian community about the rules in Canada when they land. They think that that the rules are a bit different. There's also obviously a lot of Haitian Canadian communities in both Montreal and Toronto. Uh, and then, of course, among all the many changes or rollbacks to immigration policies from the Obama era that the Trump administration has targeted, one of them was a post-earthquake Haiti relief program that gave a certain kind of asylum in the United States that is running out so I think there's a lot of reasons that Haitians in particular are flooding the borders now. But now we have questions about, you know, the next group of people who are affected. And obviously with the weather that we're seeing, they're, they're, I think we also have to do good and, and talk about climate refugees and people that are, are now going to be, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people that are going to be displaced. And I mean, the problem just compounds. I mean, there's a political conversation to be had, but also now uh, the environmental impacts of, of where we're at today in 2017 uh, has huge impacts on, on, on North America. Compounding the climate change refugees, you also have the ending or the phase out of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or DACA program over the next two years, meaning that work permits for the 800,000 undocumented young people, the children of uh, illegal immigrants, or as they call them, illegal immigrants, um, will no longer be renewed and the protection from deportation could be stripped in as soon as six months. And it is likely, you know, given the closeness of our border and our, you know, freewheeling prime minister who's like, borders are open, that they will turn their attention to Canada. And so we have Canadian Senator Ratna Omidvar saying that we should 
welcome these 30,000 or so dreamers who might want to look to Canada for where they want to live because they're educated. They're already been, they've already been through a lot of mm-hmm. screening processes. You have to have a clean record and all these sorts of things to be qualified as a dreamer. And we need immigrants. Like Canada yeah. is a country that we need immigrants. And this attitude that they're nothing but a burden is just is just false. And especially if you look at the demographic of who the dreamers are, yeah. we should be like, yay. These are young people that want to start businesses yeah. and and make money and provide for their families. And if you go down the sort of the the traditional conservative checklist of what you might what they might talk about in terms of growing the economy and taking care of of one another and and being good upstanding citizens, from what I see from the demographics and from the the requirements to access DACA, this is exactly who these people are. So the one fair argument against this I've heard is the idea that the dreamers shouldn't necessarily get to jump Skip the, the queue. line. Yeah. Um, that our our immigration system, like our immigration process is long. There are a lot of people who've already gone through it who have all those same credentials. Yeah. And I, I, I get that. Like, I think there is something to that. But I also think there's something to the fact that our immigration system is very costly, is very onerous, and we very need to do slow. a better job of making it less slow and more equitable to people who aren't necessarily wealthy to begin with. If you want to come to Canada and you have a lot of money, you can do so pretty damn easily. If you don't, it's a much more onerous process. And I think that that's something I would really like to see substantive reform to. But when we have these conversations, we just deal in these hysterical absolutes on either end of the political spectrum that we never really dig into the substantive tweaks we can make to something that is on the sum a pretty good system some days. Yeah. And I think we really have to talk about the split in Indigenous affairs. So late in August, Prime Minister Trudeau shuffled his cabinet. And one major change that he made was the creation of another department to handle Indigenous affairs. So we used to have the Ministry of Indigenous and Northern Affairs, which used to be called Aboriginal Affairs, which used to be called uh, Indian Affairs, which used to be called uh, 500 other things. Suffice to say, now we have the Department of Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs and the Department of Indigenous Services. These will be headed up by Carolyn Bennett and Jane Philpott, respectively. One is more building the relationship with Indigenous nations and focused on building nationhood inside of Indigenous communities, and one will be service-oriented specifically. So there's shiny new names, and I'd love to see the budget item on what it takes to change people's cards every fucking year. Uh, But I think that's a whole other conversation. So do you guys think this signals a shift in Trudeau's uh, strategy when it comes to working with Indigenous people? Or is this just a whole bunch of new bureaucracy that will actually end up backfiring and slowing down the process? Well, can you separate the two issues, really? And is it going to be sort of two arms kind of doing some of the same stirring in different places and sort of wasted effort and wasted energy instead of coordination between the two departments? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, yeah, I mean, Pam Palmiter, Mi'kmaq lawyer and sort of expert on all things Indigenous between the Crown and, and Indigenous peoples, she she wrote, you know, is this just double the bureaucracy? And is this sort of the superficial sort of promise that we've seen made in other areas as it pertains to Indigenous people that, that really lacks, you know, substantial systemic change that we're looking for? Well, I think it it's similar to the criticisms of, of the gender parity cabinet. It's only symbolism until you have substance that comes from it. And I think that's been the question about 
a lot of the moves from this government when it comes to uh, the promises of an in indigenous government to government relationship. And we haven't seen any substantive action on boil water advisories. There is just as many, I think actually a couple more than when the government took power. There's the trouble in Thunder Bay, which is one of those issues we want to dig into this season. There are um, the problems with the missing and murdered Indigenous women's inquiry. And I don't see unless that there was actually a need to split these four bodies, a reason to do this other than symbolism. And I'm just so skeptical about it because when governments throw bureaucrats at issues that they've promised to do better on when they haven't done much up until that point, it just sounds like that they're doing something lip service, lip service, get a couple summer headlines, try to quell the growing concerns over how they've they basically lied about what they were going to do on indigenous issues and uh, make it look like they're doing something. Let, let's wrap our head around this for a second. There are 5000 bureaucrats that work for in, indigenous affairs. 5000. That's a small town. 5,000 bureaucrats. And then you, t- you talk about the Ministry of Health, Ministry of Natural Resources, and all of the other departments that work with Indigenous peoples. And people wonder wh- where the money goes. I mean, I'm, I'm skeptical as hell. And, and I guess we'll have to wait and see. Carolyn Bennett, Jane Philpott have proven to have good ideas and good relationships with Indigenous communities. But man, these two... It's like 20 Bay Street law firms. Wow. Yeah. Can you imagine you like that? if you had 20 Bay Street law firms so, devoting their full manpower just to this issue? Like, every day of I their feel lives. like things would get done. Okay, so let's say they double those numbers. How much better could that money be spent on the ground in communities that don't have clean water or are crying out for a community center for their kids? Do you know how many times we hear about the prime minister or one of his ministers or one of the provincial ministers flies into a community after a suicide crisis. And they're like, we're going to build this community center you want. And then six months later, a year later, there's like a story that doesn't go viral. That's like, oh, no, we're, they're still waiting. Like nothing's happening with yeah. that. Yeah. Lalash is still waiting for their counselors. You know, the, the the shooting that happened in Lalash at the school there. They're still waiting for that funding to flow for the counselors. And how long ago was that? That was almost a year ago. But they can find bodies to... To, you know, create more, more bureaucracy in Ottawa. That sounds like the great way to go at good use of resources. Yeah. And, and I think, I think the problem, I think we should actually talk about bureaucracy and what actually happens inside of a bureaucracy is that obviously there's process and there's, there's, uh, you know, all kinds of different people that work on different stages of bringing funding to a community and rubber stamp things and sign things and meet about things. But for the most part, Generally speaking, the people inside of the bureaucracy have no real connection to these communities. They've never been to an Indian reserve. Generally speaking, and and I know this because there's a place in downtown Toronto called the Dotum Canonsa, which was set up for Indian affairs here in Toronto for the bureaucracy to visit so they could sit and learn from elders and, and get teachings and actually have some place to turn to better understand the issues. Uh, of The same type of facility exists in Ottawa as well. And these little Dotum Canonsa in our language translates to like a, a clan law or a teaching lodge, they set these up so that the bureaucracy has a place to turn to when they're going like, I don't even know what native people do. <laughs> and the bureaucracy is the problem. And, and we'll be watching this closely to kind of see the fallout and to be continued. I don't, 
know that this brings us any closer to our end goal. Yeah. Um, but it sure sounds good on paper. And then lastly, a few things we don't have time to unpack yet, but plan to. The future of NAFTA. The fact that we're basically halfway through Trudeau's first term. We'll put together a midterm report card on the current federal liberal government. Um, what the actual fuck is going on in Thunder Bay. Uh, how's that green slash NDP coalition government holding up in B.C.? And how the different provinces and territories plan to manage marijuana sales. We're less than 10 months away from national legalization, folks. Yay! Yay! Well, kind of yay. Yeah. <laughs> Look at what Ontario's doing. Well, it's going to be as Ontario. boring as possible. It's not going to be fun. They blew it. Yeah. They're going to give you legal weed, but you're not going to enjoy it. <laughs> It's going to be the worst weed It's going to come with like a ruler slap on your hand as you get yeah. the weed. This episode of Commons is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. You like sleep? Ashley? I like sleep. I love you sleep. like sleep? Well, guess what? Casper is an outrageously comfortable mattress sold directly to consumers. They eliminate the commission-driven annoyance of having going into the mattress store and have some creepy salesperson follow you around. In fact, they just send you a mattress in a box. It doesn't even look like a mattress could fit in the box, and boom, you have a brand new Casper mattress. I hate haggling. I like I hate it and I hate that mattresses are one of those things that you're like you have to go negotiate like it's a car or a house or something. I don't want to negotiate over a goddamn mattress. I just want something that's going to be comfortable and reliable and well engineered. Casper is an award-winning sleep service developed in-house, has a sleek design, delivered in that small box, and has an adaptive pillow and soft breathable sheets. I'm told the in-house team of engineers have spent thousands of hours developing Casper. And guess what? Casper didn't send us a mattress to try, but uh, last year they did send Jesse Brown uh, a mattress. And we're all scheduled to sleep at his house next weekend. So slumber party. Bring beer. <laughs> and the thing about buying a Casper mattress is it's like just so easy. It's risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. That's right. 100 sleeps to decide if you like this mattress or not. You can try a lot of things in 100 nights on a mattress. <laughs> Jesus. Just putting that out there. Let's let's stay on track. If, if you want to give this a try, visit casper.com slash commons. Use the promo code commons for 65 Canadian dollars off the purchase of a mattress. Terms and conditions apply once again casper.com slash commons use the promo code commons for 65 dollars off so we've decided to revamp is this a thing a little bit what I know, crazy so what we're gonna do is we're always gonna have one person who's arguing in favor of it being a thing and the other person saying it's not a thing and then the third person is the arbiter of doom who will decide <laughs> whether or not it's a thing. arbiter of doom. Yes. So if you have any things that you'd like us to deliberate, please uh, send them our way. Sometimes we will be arguing for things not being things when we actually do think they're things and vice versa. So 
Okay, so first up, we're going to do Mike Duffy is suing the RCMP and the Senate over the expenses that were clawed back from him, the lost income, and the fact that he was acquitted in that case that went through the courts a couple years ago now. He's suing them for $8 million. And here's the thing. I think this is the thing because I think he has a case because he was acquitted in the criminal courts and he did legitimately lose that income. And he's basically trying to say that the moves by the Senate were punitive and he was uh, singled out and treated more harshly than other people. And uh, I I think that there is a good chance here that Mr. Duffy, as gross as it may seem, has a really decent case. I say this is not a thing. And I think that if you follow the rules, that you don't have to payback expenses. And uh, I think at this level, when you reach the level of sitting as a senator, you have a couple of people around you that tell you, hey, Mr. Duffy, these are the rules. Make sure you follow them. You can't have a second home that you don't live at. You can't uh, expense trips that aren't Senate related business. You can't do certain things. And I think, you know, you get caught with some lax rules. But here's the thing. Yeah. Is the courts found that he was within the rules. It was the Senate who decided for itself that he wasn't. But he was acquitted. So he's saying that his good name was ran through the mud. Yes. Mike Duffy's honorable name. Let's turn to our arbiter of truth. The lawyer in me says acquittal does not mean you did not do the thing. Mm. Right? So if the glove. Does not mean not guilty. It means acquitted, not enough evidence. Mm. Right? But I say it's a thing because this is going to cost us money regardless of what's happening. It's costing the taxpayers money to defend the suit, bring the suit. It's a kind of a energy waste of, well, not waste of time, but it's taking up time, money, and energy. And, you know, that money could be best spent elsewhere. I rule for Ashley. This is a thing. Damn it. (laughs) So Doug Ford has announced that he's running for mayor of Toronto. Dun, dun, dun. So I think this is a thing because, you know what? The motherfucker could win. So I think it's not a thing because I don't think he can win because he didn't win the last time against Mayor Tory. That's what we said about his brother. But he's so much less likable than his brother. (laughs) And even, okay. People are stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I will concede that people are stupid. But I do think that the likability factor matters. And I don't think Doug Ford has it. And he doesn't, despite being wealthy, Rob Ford had a man of the people vibe to him. And Doug does not. And uh, I also don't know where he's going to find a wedge issue with Tory that will galvanize people to his side, unless he decides to cancel the Scarborough subway, in which case I would be uh, changing my vote on this as well, I think. I am just scared. I woke up on election night thinking, what? This is a dream. Trump's not president. But he was. He's definitely not likable. So I don't know if the Doug Ford likability factor is really going to. The other guy was a flandering, pussy-grabbing, you know, (laughs) assholes, and he got elected. So why not Doug Ford? I'm ready. I am ready to rule on this thing. And I'm going to, I'm definitely going to side with Hadia here. I think, I think, I think it's a thing uh, because John Tory is the mayor and no one likes that guy. So I feel like in the, in this political climate today, there, there are these binaries that are set up. It's like one or the other. And I agree. There is no wedge issue here in Toronto yet, but it seems to me that we're just in that political space where it's like, I like green. I like blue. And it's just those are the two choices. And I think we are in this dangerous period where 
we're going to see people like the, the powerful people like Doug Ford find his way uh, in and out of these systems. Uh, it's, I think we're going to be in for a surprise. I hope we're not, but uh, it's, uh, this is definitely a thing to watch. Officially, my ruling today is for Hadia. This is a thing. Boo. I win. <laughs> It's okay. So what what this is, what this is, we don't want to be intimidated by hate. We don't want hatred to ruin a positive event, right? We don't want hatred to ruin a positive event. So let's show people how we would treat someone with love. We welcome you. We welcome you. We welcome you. We love you. We support you. Last but not least for Is This a Thing, Jagmeet Singh versus a heckler. So this past weekend, we all saw the video of Jagmeet Singh at his event in Brampton, rudely interrupted by what uh, many in the mainstream media called a protester, though uh, I might call um, this person an asshole. She ran up into his face and demanded that he be on the record and answer, uh, to the way he voted on things like, uh, bill 62, which was a provincial vote in Quebec, which he did not uh, vote on be on the record for his stance on M one Oh three to talk about his uh, position on uh, Sharia law. And we need to decide today whether or not this is a thing. And I'm here to argue that in fact, this is not a thing. Why? Well, simply, I think Jagmeet Singh's uh, response to this, uh, in air quotes, protester was a profound statement on not giving power over to these type of people where you don't need to answer to this type of bigotry. And I think many people said, said this, and I think it's the main point, it's the foundation of the argument, is that by saying, hey, lady, I'm sick and I'm not, I'm not Muslim, throws our Muslim brothers and sisters under the bus by making them answer to people like this. And so I love his response of, of uh, you know, love and courage. And uh, th- therefore, this is not a thing. We don't need to give our energy over to this type of hate. See, I would use your reasons to say it actually is a thing because it is showing, A, how you can properly respond to someone who does this, B, that you don't have to throw people under the bus to defend against hate and C, hey, guess what, people? Racism is a real thing. And this is probably something he's had to deal with many, many times, not even just as a politician, just as a brown skinned man. I'm Mm. sure he's had someone come up to him with his turban and call him all sorts of slurs. Racism is real. Which is is what he said. People need to know that this is, these are things that happen to us a lot. He absolutely said that. He said, this is something, he, he was calm. He said, this, I've dealt with this before. This is nothing. We have larger problems. We have bigger issues to focus on. And, and this is why I would say it's not a thing is because he can see, he can see, and, and by the way, this isn't, uh, I'm not throwing uh, support behind him as a candidate, but I'm su- throwing support behind him as a person to say he's, he's focused on bigger issues, right? Like he's, he's seeing way past this. And, and I, I think that, but that's the thing. 
to me, the fact that he can do that and show that he can do that is important. I think she's not a thing, yeah. but I think his response is a thing. And I, I think another thing that really didn't sit well with me why I say this isn't a thing is that people are also saying like, no, this is the way you respond to hate. And I, I, I want to kind of take that apart a little bit. It's not necessarily the way. One like, way. It's, it's one his way. way. Yeah. Uh, it's okay to be aggressive and violent back if somebody's in your face as well. Now, peace is the answer, but however people experience that racism and respond to it is a-okay. And I think I've just changed, you've changed. Yeah, this Ashley. is going to happen. As the arbiter of this, I think I'm going to go with it not being a thing because it's not <gasps> Ashley. Undefeated. You just broke my heart. <laughs> Undefeated. And, and, and I think that that, I, the reason I think it's not a thing is because we have people gushing over this clip like, wow, we finally needed to confront this in Canada. Like, this is real. And if this is the video that made you realize <laughs> racism was a problem in Canada, then where the heck have you been? Um, so that's why I'm going to say it's not a thing because it's not unique. It's clearly something he's dealt with a bajillion times running for office. Also, can we put it on the record that some trolls are out there saying that Jagmeet Singh planted this person? Oh, oh, of course. Did you hear this? Did you see that? And no. so uh, this is also not a thing that Jagmeet Singh, uh, I'm pretty sure, did not plant this person t- to win the favor. <laughs> of Guys, the I have some breaking news for you. George Soros is trying to control the NDP leadership race. One <laughs> fake protester at a time. So this is not a thing because it's from George yeah, Soros. Yeah. Yeah. All right. The hand, the hand of God. <laughs> so I rule that this is not a thing. If you want to know if a thing is a thing and you want us to debate about it, send us those things to commons at canadalandshow.com. And when we come back, we'll speak with the MP for Rimouski, Nejet Temescuata, Le Basque. Guy Caron. He's one of four candidates in the race to replace outgoing NDP leader Thomas Mulcair. Caron joined us by phone from Vancouver just prior to last weekend's final leadership debate. Welcome back to Commons. We are joined now by federal NDP leadership candidate Guy Caron who's in this coming to us from Vancouver. Hello, Guy. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. And we've got a bunch of questions for you from us and from our listeners. So some say that it was uh, Mulcair's push towards the center and his refusal to endorse deficit spending that drove some of the traditionally NDP voters to the liberals in the last federal election. Do you think that this was the case? And if so, would a Caron-led NDP move to the left? Well, I I do believe that uh, the fact that we promised balanced budgets every single year gave the perception that liberals were to our left. Because the rest of the program that we had was fairly progressive. And we still talked about $15 an hour minimum wage. We talked about universal daycare, universal pharmacare. Those are not right-wing proposals. Uh, But yes, you're right. I don't think it's the only element that uh, created the problem for us. I think... Uh, the fact is, uh, we didn't have a very inspiring platform. Uh, and I would say that Mr. Mulcair also didn't show himself for who he was. I mean, his success when we were the official opposition was that he was seen as angry Tom. He, he held the government to account and people wanted to see that Tom Mulcair during the election. And they haven't. So in that sense, I do, I do believe that uh, the balanced budget 
draft uh, proposal or, or commitment was definitely a mistake. And there can be a case for, for budgets uh, or for deficits. It, it all depends on what it's used, it's used for. And in the end, you need to demonstrate that you're willing to come back to a balanced budget at the end of, a, of, a, of an economic cycle. Not every single year. You have to give yourself the flexibility, depending on the circumstances, to actually invest where it will be good for the economy. All right. Thank you. Hi, Mr. Karan. It's uh, Ryan McMahon here. Mulcair himself, you know, took the blame for the Niqab debate in the last election for the NDP's drop in support in Quebec. So very simply, should the NDP change its stance on this in 2019? You know, the stance that we took, uh, in my sense, was the right one. I mean, I do believe that the state has no business telling a man or a woman what to wear. Uh, but the thing is, and the problem was created by the fact that we we didn't listen to the concerns, to the problems that people in Quebec actually had with the mixity between religion and the state. What we have to understand is this came shortly after the whole question of the Charter of Values, which increases increase people's uh, sensitivity to the issue. I do believe that we can take the same the same position and this is what I'm suggesting, but also we need to be proactive and and try to create that bridge between the, the importance of freedom of religion and the way it's protected by the charters with the uh, the call and the uh, the demand in Quebec for secularism and uh, religious neutrality from the state. It's not an easy debate. It won't necessarily be achieved easily. But the bridge needs to be created, and this is what uh, the next leader has to, to work for. And for this, you need to understand the reality in the rest of the country and the reality in Quebec as well. So so as a follow-up question then, to build that bridge maybe here uh, very quickly, what do people misunderstand about Bill 62? And what can you say to sort of uh, help people understand your position on the bill? Well, I said that I was opposed to the content of Bill 62, but the thing is, how are we going to be allowing Quebec to have this debate if the federal government is just going to tell them you're not supposed to go in that direction? Uh, let's let's remember that the whole debate is framed, is within the confines of not one, but two charters of rights, the Quebec one and the Canadian one. So there are elements that are able to uh, or that contribute to to surrounding the debate that that's happening as i said i do i do i don't believe that the state has a right to tell a man or a woman what to what to wear and in that that would be a philosophy i would bring with me as prime minister in the country for elements that are federal jurisdiction but bill 62 is provincial jurisdiction in any case the federal government cannot get involved in the legislation itself and the question is, if you want to build a bridge, are you going to, to be able to build that bridge if you're simply going to shut down debate? And that debate on secularism in Quebec is, a, is an existing debate, and it's, uh, it's important for Quebecers to actually do it and do it right. And I would tell you that we have to trust Quebecers to, to take the right decisions on, on this matter. And I, I have uh, full confidence that Quebecers will, um, will do so. Great. So turning to some polling questions, the view of some pundits is that Charlie Angus is the favorite candidate for labor and other traditional NDP interests, and that Jagmeet Singh is most likely to appeal to immigrant and suburban voters. So who is the Guy Caron voter? Well, I would challenge the fact that uh, Charlie is the labor candidate because I'm, I'm the only one who used to work in labor. I was uh, economist for the communications, energy and paper workers, and I received the endorsement uh, last week of the 
Canadian steel workers. So I do have uh, some uh, bona fide uh, credentials with the labor movement and also with civil society as I worked for the Council of Canadians for six years and I was involved with the student movement. So I'll tell you that uh, I'm attracting a very broad range of, uh, of uh, members. Uh, there are New Canadians who are part of the movement that I'm representing, they are old, the old base of the NDP, but also especially those who do believe that what's missing to the NDP is really economic credibility. And this is the first time I believe that an economist is actually running to be the head, the leader of the NDP. Election after election, we have liberals and conservatives telling Canadians that we're just a tax and spend party and that we don't know how to manage, which is really funny when you see that we almost have a 700 billion debt and no NDP government to blame for this. But we need to build a that credibility and this is something I can I can bring forth and this is attracting a lot of people. So I'll tell you that I'm I'm not necessarily the candidate of a of a segment of our membership. I'm really the broad based candidate. John Ibbotson of the Globe and Mail recently has suggested that voters may be gravitating towards you as the abs candidate, anybody but sing. So uh, the question is, do you have abs? And are you the anybody but sing candidate in this uh, this leadership race? Well, Mr. Ibbotson is entitled to his opinion, but I don't think that's the case. I do think that uh, I'm bringing something different than what Jaimit is bringing, and Jaimit is, is is actually having a very uh, uh, great camping on his own. He's bringing ideas, and when you're talking to people from the outside, they recognize that our campings are probably the most policy-driven, but have strengths that, that Jaimit doesn't have. Jaimit has strengths that I don't have, and in the end, we're trying to oppose those two visions of what we want as an NDP leader. So, no, I don't think it's an anybody but saying or anybody but anyone it's really that we have four great candidates in this leadership race and we have four visions for the party and people are selecting the vision that's the closest to what they believe is a direction the ndp should take well that was a very great positive answer that relates to my next question the ndp leadership race and the debates have been quite civil as compared to other races who shall not be named uh, why do you think this is and you know are there fights that are going to start I'll tell you, at the beginning, people said like we had no debate, and that was normal because we had no policy, no priorities on the table at the beginning. But as we went along in the race, we started putting forth our priorities, our vision, and it was easier to, to, to challenge that vision. I mean, I will promote my own vision and, and my priorities. If I feel that another candidate uh, and that was the case, for example, with uh, Jagmeet Singh on on his call for OAS and his, uh, his his senior strategy. I did feel that that it represented the problem, and I challenged his his vision in that regard. But I do believe that we're not uh, we're not the type of party where we're personalizing those debates. We're not attacking the individuals, and that's a good thing. And let's remember that within the NDP, we know who we are, and we know why we're in the party. We are firmly committed to the progressive ideas, the progressive vision. And in the end, uh, what we're selecting is not one among four opponents. It's basically selecting the captain of the team. So we're still part of a team. And that's why we're in such agreement on the direction the party is going. Relatedly, uh, what do you think are the best qualities of your opponents? And don't worry, we'll be asking everybody this question. 
the best qualities? Yes. Uh, very simply, uh, for Jagmeet, it's his ability to communicate, uh, especially in large, gr large groups. I would say it's is charisma, and that's recognized. In terms of Charlie, it's his storytelling, its ability to to be able to to relate to everyone with stories, with uh, with is um, uh, is uh, folksy style. <laughs> uh, Nikki is uh, probably the most passionate of uh, of all of us. She she is driven, and uh, her progressiveness and and socialism cannot be doubted, and she's she's passionate about it. So I would say that this would be the, the strongest quality of each of, the, my, of my opponents. Going back to policy, one of your main policy points is uh, a guaranteed annual income. Um, I'm curious as to you know, how this relates or how, differ how it differs from the Ontario pilot project and how you think yours, uh, what yours would mean and how it would work. Oh, it differs in many, many aspects. Uh, the first one is the, the Ontario experiment is basically following uh, the conservative thinking on, on UBI, which is that it has to replace social programs. So you'll scrap social assistance and uh, disability payments for those who will receive UBI. So that's a problem because my proposal doesn't eliminate any social program. And in fact, for disability payments, they will be over and above the threshold of uh, of the low income cutoff that I'm I'm uh, proposing. Speaking of low income cutoff, I'm proposing 100% of that low income cutoff as uh, the, the the point to reach. So ensuring that everyone will will reach that poverty level. There will there will be no one under it. And the low income cutoff varies depending on the size of the city. In smaller cities of less than 30,000 people, it's going to be about $18,000. Uh, for an, a single individual, for a larger city uh, like Hamilton, for example, it would be $25,000. If you're looking at the Ontario proposal, it's going to be 75% of the low-income measure, which is the same everywhere in the province. So people in Perth, Ontario, would get the same thing as people in Toronto, for example, under that proposal. So to me, the proposal that uh, that uh, the Ontario Liberals want to put forth is really not going in the right direction. It's a pilot project, and I do believe that they are just setting it up for the next election so that they can show that they are progressives, which is not true. Uh, but my proposal, which would be fully implemented, would be coming and would ensure that everyone or that no one in, in this country would, would actually be under the level of poverty. And this is a goal that I do believe is worthwhile. And at the same time, my proposal will also address uh, the issue of economic insecurity, trying to minimize those insecurities in the face of the challenges we'll be facing, such as increased automation of our economy and also the transition that we'll need for this economy to take towards renewables. How much do we think this, this plan costs and, and you know, can, this, can this country afford it? Absolutely. Uh, I, I evaluated the costs and the CCPE uh, study in the past evaluated it to a, between 30 and 35 billion. That's not cheap, but look at look at it this way. Liberals inherited a, a balanced budget when they came in, and now they have a 28 billion deficit with very little to show for it. I do believe that if you want to invest 30, 35 billion to eliminate poverty all across the country, being the first country in the world to do so. That's a very worthwhile endeavor. And in the end, I do believe that basic income will pay for itself because when you're looking at the costs of poverty right now, because you need to survive and the stress that it brings, that survival brings, 
Having a basic income that eliminates the stress, that ensures that everyone's basic needs are fulfilled, uh, has been demonstrated to reduce uh, hospitalization rates, divorce rates, crime rates. All those elements are bringing added costs to society, and those costs will be minimized. So eventually, you have to look at basic income not as spending, but really as an investment that will pay dividends in the future, especially for provincial governments. So we have a listener on Twitter who's asked whether or not you think that this universal basic income could be used by the right to undermine other social programs or used by companies to undermine wages. So I give the example of Walmart in the States, where a lot of their workers, for example, are on food stamps and other social assistance programs. Well, I'll answer the second question first, uh, because its uh, I won't deny it's a possibility that it would be used uh, to decrease uh, wages, uh, that it would be used as a wage subsidy. But I, I do submit that it's the, the, the contrary might be true, which is that it will create an upward pressure on wages. Why? Simply because if you have, like the reason why there's so many crappy jobs at minimum wage right now is because there are people whose survival depends on taking those jobs. If you benefit from basic income and you're, you don't need to worry about your basic needs of food, lodging, and clothing, then you might not have to take that first crappy job at minimum wage because your basic needs are fulfilled. You might actually wait for a job that is a better fit for you. And because there will be less people available to do that crappy job at minimum wage, then those offering it will have to increase wages. So one or the other case are possible, and I would submit that we will not know until we apply basic income and we implement it. Now, in terms of of being applied in the future, if you have a program that is eliminating poverty, I do believe that Canadians will come to cherish and to own this program the same way as they own Medicare. And in that sense, if there was any attack by liberals or conservatives to weaken the social safety net or to weaken basic income uh, once they, they have replaced us as government, the population will come and defend it the same way as they did for Medicare because they'll see the benefits not only for those who are receiving basic income, but also for their communities. Basic income would be the would be the reason why there wouldn't be any homelessness or much less homelessness and, and desperate people. So I do strongly believe that Canadians will will uh, develop an ownership of the program that will make them defend it. Thank you very much. We're if you're just joining us now, listeners, we are here with NDP leadership candidate Guy Caron. And uh, Guy, we're going to switch uh, switch directions a little bit and talk about the environment. Your platform contains a very strong environmental plank, and you highlight the issue of climate uh, migrants. What are climate migrants, and how do you how does your government address uh, these migrants that are are making their way into this uh, country? But I, th- I think, first of all, we need to define what the climate migrant is. I think that's the right question. The thing is, it's not really well-defined right now. And because that will be a problem in the future where we'll see islands, regions that will that will experience uh, catastro- catastrophes uh, that are related to climate change, we'll need to start developing this category of refugees. And that's not done locally by one government like Canada. It has to be done internationally. I do believe that Canada has to take uh, the, the leadership in this. And this is why I'm promote, promoting this. And because climate change is occurring, because we have a large part in the occurrence of climate change uh, due to our the way that we have used fossil fuel and, 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 and basically 
we benefited from the carbon economy, we have a responsibility also in helping those that will affect the most. And this is why we need to take that leadership. So one issue that's really near and dear to my heart is electoral reform. And I know that you su- uh, support the MMP system or the mixed member proportional system. Why do you think this is the best format for Canada? Well, it's a format that uh, I do believe in, yes, but it's also the one that attracted the largest consensus in the one-year study that was done in Parliament. So in the end, we need to move forward. If we want to move away from first-past-the-post, we'll need to, to decide on the system, and no system is perfect. And I think MMP is actually the, sim- the, the simplest one to understand. Now, am I open to to tweaks of uh, in MMP with regional lists and uh, as transparent as possible, which is the way I'm presenting it, it's possible if we have the balance of power in the minority government and we have the opportunity of moving away from first past the post, I will I will seriously consider it. But if we form government, I will go in that direction and I will want it to be implemented for two elections, followed then by a referendum where Canadians will be asked if they want to keep that new system that they have or if they want to revert back to, to first past the post. And I think that's a, that's a very fair way of dealing with it. Mr. Karan, if if I could um, um, just step back in very quickly to circle back to the environment, I wanted to uh, sort of ask a follow up and expand on uh, talking about the environmental challenges as they relate to the economy here in Canada. Um, how, how does the federal NDP support a premier like Rachel Notley in Alberta with her challenge to manage jobs, the economy and the environment? And where do you see yourself? Where do you position yourself in that in that challenge? Well, Rachel Notley is doing amazing work in Alberta in very difficult circumstances. Uh, she's led the fight against methane, which is a, a GHG that's even more powerful and potent than carbon dioxide. Uh, she has closed coal plants. Uh, she uh, is moving to diversify the economy of Alberta and ensuring that workers are not left behind because she's implementing also just transition. So, and and I haven't even talked about the way that she increased uh, carbon pricing in that province. So. There's lots of progress that's been made in Alberta, and we need to support that progress in any way that we can. Um, and that's the case also if we can get a <laughs> different government in Saskatchewan, if eventually an NDP government that will, I would say, be inspired by what Rachel Nutley is doing, will be will will have to support their efforts as well. And in the end, the way that Canada will be able to help uh, fight climate change in this world will definitely be by by ensuring that we transition as quickly as possible towards an economy based on renewables, but without putting the burden of this transition on the shoulder of workers. Very good. Thank you. On this episode of Commons, we're also going to be looking into the influx of asylum seekers who are coming across the border into Canada. There have been quite a few uh, articles and media coverage about this. How would an NDP federal government under your watch address this? We need to have more resources. I mean, it's it's not abnormal that, that there are some spikes in, in the number of, uh, of people asking for asylum. Now, I Words matter and words are powerful. I want us and I want the media and I want everyone to stop talking about illegal immigrants because that doesn't exist. Anyone who's not in Canada can actually ask for asylum and it it belongs to the Canadian government to determine if they are truly refugees for to whom we should grant asylum because their life is threatened or the integrity of their person is is threatened in some in, in in any way or if they're not at which point they have if they want to come ask for a status of immigrant 
but the problem that we have is that we don't have enough resources. We don't have enough resources to uh, to uh, to determine that in a speedy fashion, and we don't have enough resources to facilitate the integration after. Conservatives cut these elements uh, drastically in the 10 years they've been there. I haven't seen any investments made by the liberals in any significant fashion, and that needs to be a priority. Uh, Mr. Karan, this will be uh, our our final question, and and we'll give you a chance to uh, make sort of a, a ninety se- up to ninety second uh, final pitch to our, our listeners. We just celebrated one hundred and fifty years here in Canada. Canada one hundred and fifty, of course, was uh, front and center this summer, and um, much of the conversation in my circle. I'm an Anishinaabe person originally from Treaty 3 in North, Northwestern Ontario, much of the conversation in my circle was about the next 150 years in Canada and what that might look like for both Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians. So outside of the buzzwords of reconciliation or the missing and murdered Indigenous women inquiry or, or drinking water, what are your priorities for Indigenous people and where do you see this relationship heading into the next 150 years? It's interesting that you're mentioning this because we're putting the last touches now to the uh, indigenous platform that will re- will have released just before the uh, the debate or just after the debate because we want to make it right. Uh, but I do believe that uh, the next 150 years have to be, well, we're talking about nation to nation. I don't think it's an empty word, even though liberals are paying lip service to this concept. Uh, I do believe that nation to nation means that we'll have a true nation to nation. That means increasing self-governance, increasing the push towards autonomy from the government, from the paternalistic way that government, uh, especially the federal government, has acted towards uh, indigenous people. So we do need to ensure that for those nations who are ready to move uh, in that direction, that we provide a template and a good faith negotiations to help them in that direction and to help them in the end by being autonomous, uh, being able to apply their rights and their 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 governance to the territory it, that they they inhabit. Uh, so, on, until we get to that point, uh, we will always have a fake nation to nation relationship in the sense that the federal government will still be playing the role of uh, of a I would say a bad father basically, which is what the colonialist uh, government has has uh, been has been doing for the last 150 years. We need to change the relationship and we need to do so by increasing the push towards autonomy and self-governance. Very good, thank you. That's all the questions we have for you today, Mr. Caron. We wish you the best of luck uh, over the next uh, month and a half and we hope you can uh, find some time to catch up on your sleep. Thank you very much and that was really fun. Thank you. That's your Commons episode for this week. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Hadia Rodrik. You can follow me at drodrik, D-E-E-R-O-D-E-R-I-Q-U-E on Twitter. I'm Ashley Chinati. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Chinati. That's Ashley with an L-E-Y. Last name's a little weird. C-S-A-N-A-D-Y. And I'm Ryan McMahon. You can follow me on Twitter at RMComedy. Very straightforward to spell. You can follow us on Twitter at Canada Land Commons. That's Canada Land, C-M-N-S. Check out our website at canadalandshow.com slash commons. And you can email the show at commons at canadalandshow.com. Our Patreon page is patreon.com slash canadaland. 
Commons is the most downloaded Canadian politics podcast in the country, and we owe it all to you guys. And the better our download numbers are, the easier it is to convince guests to come on the show. Big guests, high-profile guests, guests with distinctive socks. So please do us a favor. Between now and our next episode in two weeks, each of you try to convince two friends or colleagues to subscribe to the show. We'd really appreciate it. On the next episode, bearing any scheduling hijinks, we're going to speak with the other three NDP leadership candidates, Jagmeet Singh, Nikki Ashton, and Charlie Angus. The producer of Commons is Russell Gregg. Our music is produced by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please support us. And he's he, he's completely glossed over my abs joke. I know. I know. It's like, do you have abs? And are you the anyone but sing candidate? This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.